0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Drink, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have Greg Thomas of the Jazz Leadership Project, we got so much to speak to about. You're an omni American. We'll find out what that is. Now, I've got to tell you, it's earlier in the day. And so I always ask people, you know, what are we drinking for this conversation? I'm assuming probably we don't, I, I do have a lemonade, but you, uh, water. So, I've got okay, okay. some water. <laughs> okay. So, but let me ask you this. I'm going to change it up a little bit. Greg, if we were sitting at a bar about ready to have this conversation on a Friday, Saturday, what would you order?
1: Hmm. I like Pinot Noir. Me
2: too. Me too. wine. That is my favorite wine.
1: That's funny.
0: Okay. Uh All right. David's a bourbon guy. Sometimes he Uh, does. I'm a
2: Scotch guy, and I'm going back to Scotch right right here. So I don't think you see it very well with the... uh, Uh, David, you are... I am... Oh, my gosh. I didn't even think to
0: ask you. I'm so... You brought a drink to the table.
2: I did. I did. See? You underestimate me. I so
0: underestimated you and I apologize for this.
2: It's all right. It's all right. Oh my
0: gosh. Okay. All right. So, all right. Well, with with, with David's scotch and our dreams of Pinot Noir, we'll, we'll get started. David, you take it away with the first question.
2: Yeah. So thank you. And I've had an opportunity to, to talk to Greg and I'm fascinated by what you do and how you do it. So tell us a little bit about the Jazz Leadership Project first. Why don't we start there?
1: Gladly. Thank you. Um, I'm CEO of the Jazz Leadership Project. Um, my partner and wife, Jewel Kinch Thomas, is COO. So we run the business together. And it is a, an enterprise that's focused on working with organizations, uh, teams, in organizations generally, and also individuals, using the principles and practices of jazz to enhance their leadership capacity and their, the way that their teams work together. So in a very general sense, that's, that's what we do. Uh, and jazz is a powerful, both art form and form of cultural technology to do that it 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 accomplishes both enhancing leadership individually, but also leadership in groups.
2: Right. I, I read from your interview, and I was fascinated that, you know, there is the early version of jazz in the New Orleans tradition, and I'm probably not going to get all the terminology right, you know, created sort of the teamwork spirit, but then you had Louis Armstrong who was so good, so fantastic at what he did that it, that it created the precedent for individual leadership. And I found that a fascinating outgrowth of the jazz experience of how that would affect organizations and 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 t- any team um, so how, how do you think about jazz and its relation, both individual leadership and, and teamwork
1: well it starts with the individual i mean you know i know we're going to get into you know, you know, political, political discussions and some philosophy but you know it really starts with the individual as it does in a liberal democracy So the individual has the responsibility in jazz to develop his or her chops, his or her skills on their chosen instrument, which could be a voice or, um, you know, some drums, bass, piano, saxophone, trombone, trumpet. So there's the individual responsibility to know what you're doing on your instrument. So in the workplace, you have a responsibility to come into the workplace with a certain basic grounding in in skills now obviously we you develop those skills you don't you know no one starts out as a master um no one starts out as some you know great leader but the thing is when you have that sense of individual responsibility, you know that you've got work to do in order to play your instrument the best you can within a group context. So in the same way, you have the responsibility to get the knowledge, skills, um, and the skills are not just technical skills in what you do, but it's also skills in say, emotional development, emotional maturity, emotional intelligence, because you're interacting with other human beings. So there's certain groundings that you have to have in order to best communicate and work with uh, other people. So it starts with the individual. And then you know, we relate it to teams. So we have four principles and six practices. The first two principles and the first three practices deal with the individual. The last two pra- principles and the last three practices deal with the group. So, we have this dynamic within the very structure of the jazz leadership project, which we then share with teams and we've been fortunate to work with some uh teams at verizon t d bank j p morgan chase n y p d and uh we find that the model is is very exciting for folks because it's it's a different way of approaching leadership and team development.
0: it so is i mean, I have to tell you so to tell you a little backstory on me. I'm not a musician. I mean, I played piano when I was young, you know, um, I'm just, that's not the gifts that God gave me. Uh, <laughs> I've got some others. That's not one of them. And then I married a musician and rock and roll. So it was like late nights, you know, bars, whatnot, smoky bars. And after about 10 years, I just kind of got burnt out. I'm the kind of person that needs to, 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 think in silence. I'm a slow thinker. So, I haven't really put together how music and leadership usually have collide and your piece in free black thought was mind blowing to me and it really just opened up like new parts of my brain that not being a musician that I was just like I had no idea, I had no idea. I kept on saying I have no idea. I've got pages of notes. But here's why I want to tell you what I really love and you've already touched on this is I wrote down to me from your description of jazz, jazz is E pluribus unum jazz is out of many one. And for me personally, because I work on the moral courage project and our big thing is it's not either, or it's both. And, and you talk about how jazz is both and, and you just touched on that where it's like, it's both the individual and the community. And I feel like in this day and age, it's so much either or, like you're either an individualist or you're a communitarian. There's not. And jazz puts it together. Can you talk a little bit more about that synergy and that integration between the individual and in the community and where jazz plays a role in that? I know you just touched on it, but to me, it's fascinating.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. I, I'd be happy to. I mean, there's a fundamental democratic ethos within jazz music. Jazz music itself is, some say, America's classical art form, but why is that? Yes, the e pluribus unum is fundamental. You mentioned about Omni-American earlier, and for me, uh, an Omni-American identity is e pluribus unum in action, out of many, one. So we have shared values, shared ideals, shared aspirations, but we have different backgrounds and we have different ways of going about it. So in jazz, it's so beautifully synthesized. It's really not an either or, it is both and. and in fact, in um, theater and uh, improvisational comedy, there's a fundamental expression, yes, and. Because as you are listening and engaging, the point is to take what someone shares with you and take it and continue and further it. So you accept what they present and then you continue it on improvisationally. So uh, jazz is just so fundamentally grounded. Now there's there's a piece to this that is maybe ironic. Jazz around the world Uh, not long after its its founding. It it really, you could say, started in New Orleans at the turn of the century, turn of the last century. Um, And you have so many different tributaries and and forces and, and cultures that go into it. But fundamentally, jazz was founded and innovated by the folks we call Black Americans. Uh, Earlier, we were called Negro-Americans, and before that, we were called colored. And there are some negative names that we won't say that we also know that we've been called. Uh, But the point is that jazz was developed in the context of unfreedom. So jazz fundamentally around the world represents freedom. American freedom. But the irony is that the folks who founded it weren't free, which showed you the power of artistic creation and art forms to reflect the higher values of a group of people. So you didn't have freedom, so you create something where freedom within form is the fundamental, and improvisation is fundamental to it. That's the beauty mm-hmm. and power of culture yeah. and of art, you know? So, yeah, the and then, spirit- of course, I'm just going to say one last thing. Once you yeah. create an art form, it doesn't stay. It's not, it's not um, proprietorship. Well, no one else can play jazz other than Black people. That's like saying no one else can play basketball other than a particular group. How ridiculous is that? Once an art form is created, it becomes a gift to the world. And can be an inspiration to the world, and therefore, uh, jazz is is one beautiful example of that.
2: Yeah, that's beautiful. The human spirit soars um, in all conditions. So, I have a question, and this is sort of my uh, a prerogative question. I you know, it's not on the list, but I love the movie Whiplash. I'm assuming you saw Whiplash. Did you see the movie? Yes, yet? I and you did. Have, and you probably get asked about it. I, I, so I, so forgive me if you... No, no, no. ...too much. I have, uh, I've never uh, spoken publicly about the movie. Okay. So Terrence Fletcher is this brutal teacher, notorious teacher at this school. Schaefer, I think, is the name of the jazz school. And um, this student comes along, a very talented, hardworking, driven... Ambitious student named Andrew comes along and and starts playing the drums and it turns out that Terrence Fletcher's single ambition was to find the next jazz great. And he's willing to destroy the entire band experience to find that one person to continue the tradition of jazz because he feels that it's been dumbed down so much. And I, I have to tell you, like, I almost had like, I, I couldn't help but admire the movie's message because on the one hand, that's not how I want to build teams. That's not how I want to create teamwork. But I, there's some part of me that understands that maybe we needed Terrence Fletcher, who's going to create, bring out the next great. And I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with that. And I'm just wondering, as someone who comes from both jazz and leadership, how you made sense of the dilemma that came out of that movie.
1: Well, I'll refer to the upbringing of of some musicians you've probably heard of. Wynton Marsalis will talk about this. Marcus Roberts will talk about this. How in earlier jazz times, and including when they were developing, it was, I don't think it was quite as brutal as in that movie. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it was like i mean there's the there's the charlie parker movie a movie yeah. about charlie parker bird that clean east clean eastwood did and one of the iconic moments in that i think it's in a story but it it tells the same story and it happens to involve a drum cymbal and the story goes that the great papa joe jones was playing with a young charlie parker in kansas city and he was in development he didn't have and so the so he, he was playing a song, trying to improvise it, playing in the wrong keys. And supposedly, Papa Joe Jones took his cymbal off and threw right. it at his feet. Boom! Right. That's in the movie, actually. He talks that's about that. That's what I'm that. saying. That's and he actually the threw,
2: the Terrence Fletcher character actually threw a cymbal or threw some kind of object at the at, to, to indicate that that's what he was doing. Right. I, I and that, was, so
1: that's, that's yeah. like that same story. Now, what happened? Now, some musician young musician might have been destroyed by that might have just quit yeah Charlie Parker was inspired, and he this is on an interview he did with Paul Desmond, another great alto player with the with the Dave brubeck uh, quartet. He interviewed Charlie Parker and Charlie Parker said that he went through a period well, let me back up. Paul Desmond was like, you have this incredible technique. Oh, my God, is it, is it natural? Did you did, did you just come with that? Which kind of is a ridiculous question when we know about the 10,000 hours. I mean, everything takes a lot of work to, to, to make it sure. seem effortless. So Charlie Parker said, you know, I don't think the technique is all that. Yeah, well, he could say that. He's the one with it. But everyone else who hears it, but he said, well, I did go through a period of three to four years where I played 10 to 14 hours a day. You see, so sometimes that can be a spur, and inspiration, you know. Um, I think there's a balance. There's a pedagogical balance between supporting in a, let's use, um, a uh, Taoism in a Yin nurturing way, and in more of a Yang tough love way. There's a balance that we can strike. It's not really either or. Once again, it's both ends. Um, and I think he was a little too tough then. He paid the price for it. That teacher, he paid the price in 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 the movie. You know. So I, I think we should strive for for more balance.
2: There. <laughs> All right. I I have a question that uh, builds on this. Um, so what is, you're doing race relations, you exemplify that in your life's work. What can we learn from Jazz about how to do race relations in today's America?
1: Well, let me say this. If you notice, if you look at the, if you listen back to the transcript, not once have I mentioned the word race or mm-hmm. race relations. Um I am of a very strong opinion that we have to critique and we have to, I'm gonna use a word from the academy, interrogate certain ideas. Race is one of those ideas. So when you say race relations, that presumes the reality of races. (laughs) <laughs> so I don't accept that I'm, I've am i been talking about culture so if we're talking about cultural interaction mm-hmm. if we're talking about now to make the transition from what we are really under now and have been for a few hundred years a racial ideology a racial worldview to make the transition to a non-racial worldview we'll have to use language that's what we have to work with So I will say that there are people who are racialized as black, racialized as white. Okay, so that's a transitional way of putting it. So Mm -hmm. I'm gonna use an example from the music. Um, Benny Goodman, great clarinetist who, back in the thirties was the most popular really musician in the country and probably the world who play jazz. He had the great Lionel Hampton, vibraphonist, uh, drummer and Teddy Wilson, great pianist in his group, both his small group and his big band. From the outside, if you accept the premise of race, it's like, whoa. Look, at he's, he has these two Black musicians, quote unquote, Black, racialized as Black, playing in his band in a day and age where it was about segregation. You don't even, you don't sit together, you don't play together. Mm. But from inside, now from outside, you can look at that and say, wow, look at that. And it because of that perception, you have to say it was a great advance. He did that before Jackie Robinson integrated baseball. That's very important but from within the group, were they focusing on race? No, it's about playing the music and playing it the best they can. And he wanted the best musicians he could get, regardless of race, regardless of the color of their skin, which tells you what about an individual? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just, you know, it tells you that they do have Darker skin, they have more melanin <laughs> that they're working with. But otherwise, you know, what is it really telling you? So, right. from inside, it's cultural, it's shared intersubjective agreements about how we're going to go about working together, playing together, uh, creating this beauty in the world together. That's what it was about. From outside, you can say, oh my God, what a social events in race relations? You see what I mean? You see the thing I'm
2: making? Mm-hmm. Mm, interesting. Um, you've done some work with Free Black Thought. You did that wonderful interview on the Journal for Free Black Thought. Um, what do you make of the diversity of thought within the so-called Black community or the racialized Black community? <laughs> I like that your terminology i'm working on it thank you, you and a few of my friends are helping me along in this journey myself to uh de-racialize my friends so that's that's an important uh important thing to do so what do you make of what do you make of these i i'm i'm quite positive that that there's always been diversity going uh, in in the black community but um how if you look at today's hyper racialized environment hyper politicized environment how do you see the sort of a, a range of opinions now within the Black American community?
1: There's um one could say there's always been a diversity there. You could say that during the period of enslavement that there was a development ironically again of certain ways of solving problems that's what human that's what human beings do so those ways of solving problems based on the predicament um, and oppression that we went under there were certain things that developed strategically things to do and not to do things to value things to be careful of um and then those things are shared. And then there are certain actual art forms that develop that expressed our highest values the spirituals, blues, jazz, and other forms. But once we get to, let, let's just fast forward to the civil rights era and the post civil rights era. Um, because certainly there was, well, well, actually, I won't do that. Let's go 19th century. You have different public figures in the Black community who, or in the so-called Black American community, uh, who had different ways of approaching how do we deal with the situation that we're in, pre-Civil War, during the Civil War, during Reconstruction and after. Um, Some had, you know, you have Frederick Douglass who really embraced the founding documents and the principles and and values there. You had others who rejected it as a lie. You had some who said, hey, let's go outside of here and go to Liberia. And and, and there was actually folks who left the United States, went to Liberia to form a colony. So you always had these different perspectives. You have, uh, of course, the great W.E.B. DuBois, um, who wrote The Souls of Black Folk, uh, of, uh, yeah, The Souls of Black Folk, 1903, um, and he had a certain view of political development. Booker T. Washington, on the other hand, said, let's make sure that we have our skills in an industrial economy down and use that basis of skill development and enterprise to then get to a place where we have more equality. Those are two different visions. Then you have someone like Anna Julia Cooper, who in the late 1800s uh, wrote wonderful work that is now a part of um, African American studies, Africana studies, Black American studies, it's called various things. But she had disagreements with some of the male leaders, you know, in terms of their being male centric. And so, so, you had, you always had this, you know, these different ways of approaching problems. So, my God, today, post civil rights era, you know, even though the political spectrum is usually placed into binaries, left, right, liberal, conservative. Uh, You have Black folks all over that spectrum. You have some above it. You have some who extend beyond it. (laughs) So there's a great, great diversity. It may not be covered in mainstream media, but there's a great diversity there. So what is called heterodox, um, is actually the 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 norm. Uh, the mm-hmm. diversity of opinion is the norm. I would say
0: it's the norm mm-hmm. across all of this. You know, I mean, I think that we miss that um, when we're talking. We, we we when we label people and we put them in boxes. Uh, going a little bit off of that, but obviously still in the same same area one of the things that you talked about was the idiomatic variations in culture and this emphasis on culture over race. And I, I've got a question for you. So we interviewed Kenny Shu, who wrote the book, An Inconvenient Minority. And one of the things that he was saying is like, culture is in some ways chosen. Like you can choose like, to have the bad aspects of culture, the good, I mean, and we all have bad, good aspects of culture. I mean, culture is not monolithic like anything else, like the individual it's not monolithic. Um, And then of course, uh, Sheena Mason, who I know that you've spoken to as well, would say, there is no race, there's culture and there's ethnicity. Those are two separate things. And we continually conflate culture and race together. And so I, when I think about what Kenny said, how you can almost, choo- I mean, I don't know if you can really choose culture. I mean, you're born into it. I i think if you have agency, you can say, I'm going to take that good aspect and I'm going to take, you know, do away with that bad aspect. And then looking at how Sheena was saying that um, culture and ethnicity is what we're talking about when we talk about race and that is wrong. I don't know that there's a question in there, except for the fact that I really love that the Omni American um, event that you put on, you put on with a, a a friend of yours from Israel. Am I am I right?
1: Yes, Arye Tepper.
0: Okay, thank um, you.
1: Uh-huh. And
0: you mentioned something about a positive relationship between people of different cultures, and when I read into that, and again, I'm going back to the either or both both-and-and-and There's a difference between us and them and us against them. And we're falling more and more on the side of us against them. It's human nature that we do kind of fall into tribes here and there, but our tribes overlap. Sometimes it's based on color, culture. Sometimes it's based on jazz. You know, I mean, I'm not part of your jazz tribe, right? (laughs) And so I just saw the beauty in what you created in the omni-american movement because it really wasn't us and them i don't again i don't know if there's a a question in there but if there's anything that you want to comment on that on the us and them versus the us against them and also this idea of culture versus
1: race okay gladly the event you're referring to is combating racism and anti-semitism together Shaping an Omni-American Future um, that was uh, broadcast at the end of September, uh, September 24th and 25th of 2021. It's a collaboration between or among the Jazz Leadership Project, the American Sephardi Federation, and the Combat Antisemitism Movement. And one of the themes throughout was culture, not racial essentialism throughout. And yes, I agree, Uh, uh, Dr. Sheena Mason, who I've engaged in public conversation with, makes those key distinctions. I for years have been making that that distinction. That's one of the things I learned from delving deeply into the work of Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray. Um, And Albert Murray is the author of The Omni-Americans. That was his first book in 1970. And the event, the broadcast, which was two parts, was based on his work. That's the shaping an Omni-American future part. But I learned from Ellison and Murray that the real deal is about culture. That race, what someone who I learned about, really, first learned about the work of Ellison and Murray from Stanley Crouch. He called it in one of his books, a subtitle, The Decoy of Race. That race is a decoy. Race is, um, particularly in biological terms, illusory. Now, a belief in race, racialization, breaking up groups into racial categories is very real and has had social effects, institutional and structural effects, for sure. And it still does. But. If we focus on culture, if we focus on how various people have different values, those values will come into conflict. You don't don't have to look at their skin color in order to talk about differences in value. Differences are real, okay, and important. If we're talking about, values then you can say well what are the primary fundamental values and culture is an expression of values that manifests in what the products of culture the way we speak that's idioms, the way we move, the way we dance, the way we uh, do food the way we the way we create music you know, It manifests. So you have an internal dimension of culture, right? That is intersubjective. Subjective is the individual. But when you have more than one individual, you have intersubjective agreements. I referred to this and alluded to this earlier with Benny Goodman and Lionel Hampton and Teddy Wilson. So those are in, those are inner. That's like the inside aspect of groups. There is a jazz culture. There is a chess culture there is a jewish culture a jewish american culture is there diversity of thought amongst jewish people oh my lord you know (laughs) come on i can attest i argue
2: with i argue with myself half the time
1: (laughs) 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 and you should that's a that's a that's a good sign uh so we have to understand like the history of racialization in this country, why it happened, when it happened, how it developed and changed over the course of American history. But if we focus on culture, we will see the things that we share in common. We will see the things that we differ on and we will point to values, meanings, traditions, practices that we can to go to what you were saying, Jennifer, There are certain things we can choose, focus on jazz. So because socially, Negro Americans and folks racialized as white were separate socially and black folks were held out of the political sphere in terms of economic engagement. You do have this this, separate course of development though, You still have intersecting uh, influences. That's the power of culture. Ellison talks about how on the plantation, you know, there would be dances that the, you know, formal dances that the um, plantation owners would have, right? Social affairs. Well, Negro Americans would observe this. And they started creating dances that integrated their own style with that, and in some cases, making fun of the other thing. But then, the "quote unquote" white folks saw what they were doing and were influenced by the by the by the uh, uh, the dances of the Negro. So there's always this cross cultural influence going all the time, even with restrictions based on race and racialization. So it's good to, it's very important to acknowledge that. Um, and right, so- you, Can I ask you about that for a second? Absolutely. It seems
2: to be based on what you're saying that this whole concept of cultural appropriation is really just bonkers. Because if what you're saying is true, and I believe it is true, Human societies flourish when different cultures interact, when they borrow and steal from each other, when they learn from each other. Now, it's not something that we should see as a as an assault on another culture, but rather sort of plagiarism is the highest form of flattery, if anything.
1: (laughs) That's true. That is true. Ellison, Ralph Ellison, uh, in his 1977 book of essays, Going to the Territory, talks about cultural appropriation. And he even talks about it earlier. And he says, actually, appropriation is the way culture works. Now, what are folks who critique cultural appropriation talking about? And where do they have a point? They have a point when you look at a museum, you look at the British Museum and you have all of these artifacts from these other cultures that were stolen from those cultures. Well, that's the kind of cultural appropriation that you can critique. If you have a cultural art form that has been created by a group of people in a particular place in a particular time, and you don't acknowledge that, that is wrong. And if you claim that you did create that, that's appropriation. So it's not like there's no validity to cultural appropriation that critique at all. It's just that It doesn't acknowledge that, as you say, that's the way it works, baby. That's the way culture actually works. And that's the beauty and power of culture, American culture in particular. Right. Because we have an experiment here in the United States of America. The first truly multicultural, and I'm going to use a term that's a common term that I critique, but I'm going to use it first multiracial democracy. Never before in all of human history has this been attempted, so it's hard. So getting this right, understanding what culture is and does, getting an intelligence around values, meanings, practices, traditions, honoring where it comes from, but It being a gift to everybody once it's created is the way to go. Now, you have early on, I mean, it was pretty clear to musicians early on that it was Negro Americans who were the founders and innovators of what we call jazz. So in Chicago, you have a group of racialized as white young people, teenagers, teenage boys who were so enamored with the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, when they came to Chicago featuring Louis Armstrong, they were blown away. They were magnetized and attracted to the power of the music. And they looked at it as part of their own identity. They did not allow race to say, well, That's theirs, they're playing that, therefore I can't, know. I love what I'm feeling. I love what I'm hearing. I'm a musician, that's what I want. So what do you do? You learn the art form. You learn the subtleties and nuances, the idiomatic nuances of the form. And you do that by listening to records, playing along with it. By going to jam sessions and playing with other people, even though publicly so-called black and so-called white musicians did not play together after hours in the in the joints where it was just the musicians and maybe, you know, a, a small group of people. They would jam together because it was about playing together and learning from each other. The great tenor saxophonist, Lester Young, called Prez, like the president of the tenor saxophone. He was greatly influenced by white uh, saxophonist, uh, Frankie Trumbauer, it's cross influences, you know? So it's it's really important to make these clear distinctions, but the emphasis is is culture and appropriation, uh, except in rare cases, because of course, there has been that in some cases, these days with information being so available it's really tough to culturally appropriate something as your own without, you know, people saying that's just nonsense. This is where it started. Mm-hmm. That's like that's like the, that's like the British saying, "We founded opera." No, the Italians did. Okay, <laughs> okay, right,
2: right. So we are in this current environment, this charged environment. And we've seen this play out in elections. You have critical race theory, whether you believe it's actually critical race theory or not not is another question that uh, people are debating about in schools. There are people who say, well, there's no critical race theory in schools, but we are teaching kids about how systemic racism um, impacts people's lives and so forth. And there are other people saying, well, that's an opinion. Um, You know, and I, I, I want my kids to be able to discuss or debate that. And then it plays into the historical narrative as well. And, um, you know, Jennifer knows this better than I do between the 1619 Project and the 1776 Project and everybody else. What do you make of these debates over race and racism? And and I guess my follow-up will be, which I'll ask you in the beginning, is given that, how do we get to this point where we can create an omni-American? How do we get uh, when, when, there, when, we're, when there's such bickering and anger about how race and racism are being conceived in society today?
1: Let me, I'm going to take a big step back and up and come back to your question. Okay. We are going through one of the most momentous transitions in human history right now. Okay. When we transitioned from hunter-gatherer to agricultural, that was huge. When the printing press came online and was a technology where people then could have books that they would read for themselves as opposed to going through the few priests, say, and other elites who read, that was a game changer. The industrial age, total game changer, okay? We are now in a post-industrial period where with the collection of technological developments in transportation, energy, food, information, and materials, such that we can transition, and this is based on a great book called Rethinking Humanity, a short but very dense and powerful Book by two consultants um, that I strongly recommend people check out. What we've gone through is a period where if you look at human development as worldviews of cultural codes, we've gone through indigenous to more of a traditional society where myth and religion was, was prominent, to a modern society where science and economic developments to focus to uh, a post-modernist orientation of critiquing what came before, critiquing both modernism and traditionalism, but mainly modernism. Um, you have all of these various developments. Right now, according to the authors of Rethinking Humanity, we can go from what they call the the, the period from the time of the traditional through modernity, the extractive, it's like growth, 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 get bigger, bigger, bigger empire building, you know? Extract resources, you extract from nature, you extract from the human population, human capital to build and grow. And they say that we have a choice in the next 10 years, we can either deal with this transition from the age of extraction to what they call the possibility of an age of freedom based on these technological developments where we can have human beings who for say about $300 a month can have all of the energy, food, all of the necessities taken care of. Be relieved of the work, drudgery work because machines will do that shit, you know, (laughs) okay? Or we could have what's happened throughout history where you have these, these dark ages. You have development, civilizations fall. Development, civilizations fall. For the first time, we can actually choose another course. The incumbents of this current system in politics, in enterprise, whenever you have power, people hold on to power. So the incumbents of the current system, the industrial to post-industrial system, are holding on, that's what the incumbents always do. But these, the combination of technological developments happening is so rapid, it's exponential. And if we don't have what they call a new operating system, this is mental now, what is the epistemological basis of the way that you are going to look at your society, how people are going to work together and benefit, we could have another dark age. And with the technologies that we have of destruction, and of course, with what's going on in climate, we don't even know if we, the earth is going to survive. Question is whether we will survive as human beings. So that's the big context, right? A racial way of seeing things. Is part of the old model, the old paradigm. We need to let that go and see what can we do to create a model where we, or create an operating system. I'm going to use their terminology that will increase human flourishing and abundance. And autonomy the liberal democracy and the developments and the and the uh, values of a liberal democracy are foundational they were built on the foundation of the traditional values that came before them Postmodernism wouldn't be possible without a modern you know society to critique <laughs> So the question is, what do we do to increase both our autonomy as individuals and our being more communitarian? What do we do to increase our individual responsibility as well as our shared uh, rights? This is a direction that we're moving in. And there are certain movements that I just want to name briefly that are uh, grappling with this. There's the, the there's meta there's meta-modernity, that's one, by philosopher Lean Rachel Anderson. So there's a whole meta-modernism uh, mode of thought. There is integral theory. People who are aware of Kim Wilbur, he's one, but there are there are variations on this integral theory that people like Steve McIntosh, philosopher. Developmental politics, how America can grow into a better version of itself that talks about these developmental trajectories, but looks at a way of integrating what came before, embracing the best of what came before, leaving aside the bad parts of what came before so that we can develop a a way of operating with each other that leads us towards more human flourishing. Mm. So, so so, this book is a foundation for a movement called a post-progressive movement. It's a political movement that tries to integrate the best of what came before that recognizes, as I've done in this conversation, i tried to recognize when certain critiques are valid, but as, as we say in the integral movement, it's true, but it's partial. It's not the whole truth, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean. So yeah. we have to move towards more of a whole truth orientation, um, and the the racial—I mean—that is so—that is so—that is so twentieth so, so century,
2: yeah. Huh?
1: So it's so
2: twentieth century, right? Um, well, it's twentieth century, I, I, but
1: it actually was founded in more of the uh, seventeenth century. Yeah,
2: right. But it still seems to me that you're you're still—if if you're talking about operating systems or epistemologies. You're still fundamentally talking about a liberal operating system in which people can exchange ideas freely, in which they can, I mean, I can't imagine navigating this tremendous change from one economic and social order to another without having the ability for people to talk, be wrong, um, go through the scientific method and so forth. So it seems to me that the fundamental operating system is still liberal and that, um, and that this, what Wesley Yang calls the successor ideology, which is this postmodern way of seeing things, is still not going to be the way to get you from
1: A to C or D. It, 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 it almost, it intrinsically can't because it's based on deconstructing, it's based on critiquing language and critiquing power structures. And that's an important function. But right. you, you don't build upon just deconstruction. You have to reconstruct. right? And whatever we reconstruct has got to have the foundation of a liberal democracy that's fundamental to it. Right.
0: You know, you Great. say something on that that really, again, struck me. You talk about, and I'll let you say it more eloquently than me, but you talk about the I, we, and the it, right? So the I is the individual. We and you've touched on this all throughout. You know, we've got our own individual responsibility. The we is where culture lives, and it's the it that's the system out there. How do we pull all those things together, or do we? Well, that's
1: beautiful because that's one way of looking at the whole. Mm -hmm. We are individuals. We work with other people. So there's a we or an us. And sometimes we're in tribes, that's an aspect of us. But then you have objective reality. You have structures, institutions, systems that are in place that we all have to interact with and within. So it's all of those together. Postmodernism, for example, has a very, very structural emphasis. See, the thing is about postmodernism is that it touches on all of those. It touches on the structural, because there's structural critique, systemic racism. It acknowledges culture by saying that truth is culture or context bound. So it does acknowledge culture in that way. And then it focuses on individual feeling. So that's the subjective. So it has a way of dealing with those, but it's still not broad enough and deep enough. Postmodernism is very surface in its orientation. Mm -hmm. These other models that I've mentioned have more depth to them because they're looking over a longer and larger span of human history and development and how we can learn from the lessons of history not fall into the same traps we've fallen into in the past, but it's difficult because, as I said, we're in a transitional place here. We don't know what's going to happen. We can project and we can see the direction that things are moving, but we don't know some of the unintended consequences of the actions that we might take today. So that's why we have to have an open kind of, improvisational sense about us. We have to be open to improv improvising. but you're improvising upon a foundation of shared moral values, shared individual values and shared transcendent values. That is one of the missing elements of modernity, the transcendent. And this is something that Steve McIntosh talks about in developmental politics and his other work. And what the postmodern or post progressive postmodernists try to do, because of that gap in modernity in terms of the sacred, I say transcendent, you can say sacred, you know, because religion and myth then becomes subservient or criticized by science and economic development. So what are you going to do when there's that gap there? When there's that that lack, that absence? Well, postmodernists end up focusing on identity and identity groups, and and that almost becomes, as John McWhorter says, like a religion, yeah. because we need we need things to believe in. We need myth. We need belief systems. You know. So if that's gone and it's just about economic development and scientific development in an empty, meaningless universe, whoa, then you have the development of existentialism. It's like, ah, it's all meaningless and you just make your meaning. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to re-embrace some sacred, what's sacred? What's, what's transcendent? And what can become transcendent is human flourishing, as much human flourishing as we can get, but that's gonna come through challenge and support. People have to grow and develop. They can't just be, it can't be a welfare state where you're just giving people stuff. You, You have to have work, but because so much of our work will be replaced by machines, it opens up the possibility for human beings to be in a place where we can be creative. Mm -hmm. We can focus on so many of the things that makes life worth living. Mm -hmm. But if we don't go that route,
0: what's the the opposite?
1: It's the dark age. And what would that look like? It looks like four or five technology groups and we can name them to have access to more information about us than we have about ourselves mm-hmm. and using that information to create something that is called surveillance capitalism, mm. where you've got these handful of elites. You're on pause, David, so so you couldn't uh, hear you.
2: I, I you, just said that's one dystopia. I think we could probably name a few.
1: That, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> there, there are a bunch of dystopias. You see them in the movies and stuff. So that's one, you know. And so we have a choice. We have a choice. That's why this conversation and these conversations that we have are so crucial because I really believe, and I've only come to believe this in the last one or two years by the study I've been doing, that we've got about 10 years to get this right.
2: Uh-huh. It's funny, I have to say, and I'm sure we're going to be wrapping it up soon, Greg, that I, for, for several years, I wrote about this transition from a manufacturing economy and social order to this, whatever you want to call this information uh, technologies, uh, you know, transition we're going through. And then I sort of left that behind a bit. I mean, I pocketed it somewhere up here, but um, and started talking about the sort of imposition of woke ideology, which I felt was bad for liberalism. And you've sort of married these two ideas in a way that I think is very compelling. So I'm going to have to go back and, um, And create some new neural connections, I think, between between two phases of my own life where I was sort of preoccupied with one or the other.
1: That's beautiful. That is an example of the kind of cognitive creativity and advancement that we have to do within ourselves. You know, when we grow, when we grow, we know that as children. We, we have these growth spurts, and those growth spurts are not just physical. There's, there's different perceptive capacity that we have as we get older. Well, it doesn't stop at the age of 21. It yeah. actually continues and can continue. Robert Keegan at Harvard is one who talks about these different, you know, socialized mind versus self-authoring mind. And then there's transformative. You know, there's these different models of development. and you know, you go back to a fundamental principle, lifelong learning. You know what I mean? We, we grow and develop through all our, our, our lives. So I hope, you know, and look forward to you doing that integrated work, David.
0: And I think yeah. it's what you call now that you're talking about that though, that's what you call kind of the ensemble mindset.
1: Ooh, ooh.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I mean, I yeah. think that's the, that's part of the thing is where, what we're, we're, we're We're parts of this whole, and we work as individuals in order to work together and yeah.
1: There's a creative, there's a co-creative intelligence that occurs Mm -hmm. that we do together. So we we got our individual thing, but it's within the group context. And there's that beautiful polarity and tension there. But the tension between polarities, like liberty and equality, for example. This Mm -hmm. is again, developmental politics. That's a fundamental independent polarity. You're not going to resolve that. Liberty and equality, you are not going to resolve that tension. You can manage that because they're interdependent polarities. Right. So you have these kind of dynamics in terms of values that, that are going to be there, but they end up becoming engines, for creative advance. Alfred North Whitehead talks about creativity in this way, you know, so yeah, do that, do that synthesis and that integrating work, David. I I gotta bring my
2: drums and my sax together. It sounds like here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm gonna work on it. Thank you. The ensemble, you're welcome. The ensemble mindset (laughs) is a wonderful model. In our, because I alluded to it, let me just very quickly go through our, our principles in the Jazz Leadership Project. Starts with individual excellence, fundamental. Then there's antagonistic cooperation. That's one of those polarities we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Antagonism, cooperation. We put it together and that's a term that comes from the hero's journey. Yes. So you have, you're gonna have challenges. The question is, how are you gonna face them? You're gonna have conflicts. The question, what are you going to do to grow and learn from them? So that's individual. Then you've got the group. You have the concept of shared leadership, even in a band or a team where there's one main leader, a figurehead. You still have each person playing their role, doing their thing, who's a leader, in his or her own right. So you've got the jazz rhythm section. You it might be the it might be the the Winton Marsalis quintet, but the drummer has a key responsibility. Some of the bass, the piano and the tenor saxophone. And so they all contribute as leaders in their own right, that shared leadership. And then ensemble mindset, that's our highest principle and that's enacted through uh, putting all of these previous principles into action through the practices that we engage in and where it's swinging and improv improvising together on a very, very high level, where it's not just individual flow, but group flow. And that's where that creative advance happened. When you've got groups of people grooving and swinging together, it's very, very powerful. That's one of the great appeals of jazz.
0: That's what I was. Oh gosh. I mean, I'm humbled by your knowledge. I'm humbled by what, I mean, like I said, this morning, I just that this burst of like putting that music and putting that jazz together and seeing that synergy. It's just been absolutely amazing. I hope that you will be a mentor for me in the future that I might either we could bring you back on to talk, but even, you know, you know, personally, because I just, I mean, it, it, it yeah, my, I I, I,
1: I, I, feel you, I okay. feel you, and I, you know, <laughs> I, I, I make those
0: connections before. No, I
1: appreciate, because what you're expressing is having recently, down, you recently downloaded this. Yeah. And it's, it's very profound, but this is, I mean, this comes out of decades of deep study of history of grounding in what I call the blues idiom wisdom tradition that for me started with Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, but that was most prominently presented by Ralph Ellison and and Albert Murray. Then you have people like Charles Johnson, Stanley Crouch, Winton Marsalis, Danielle Allen, who's at Harvard. I put her in that group. She's a wonderful political philosopher. and a lot of other study, obviously. So I've synthesized quite a bit, as you can tell. And I'm trying to step up. I'm teaching this course called Stepping Up with my wife and, and a great friend, Amil Handelsman, uh, so that these perspectives can be a part of the discourse, be a part of the <laughs> conversations that we're having. Because it's, it's usually not. No. And, and, so, and it needs to be. It really needs to be, and it's coming from not just the head; it's coming from the heart too, yeah. and you can tell that.
0: Oh, you can tell. I mean, like I said, I've got it. I've got to read on the blues idiom because you mentioned, it, and I wrote it down. The Albert Murray blues idiom. He said, and this goes back to the jazz, and um, it's an attitude of affirmation in the face of difficulty, of improvisation in the face of challenge. It means you acknowledge that life is a low down dirty shame yet confront the fact with perseverance with humor and above all elegance
1: oh oh my goodness
0: oh my god i mean i, I wrote the whole thing down <laughs> I'm
1: not, that's uh, yeah. the, 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 that's wisdom to live by oh my gosh that's acknowledging the downsides of human reality and saying that anyway we are going to swing anyway yes. together
0: yes. <laughs> oh my gosh yes. such a pleasure greg um yeah
1: i hope that this, thank you, I,
0: I thank you wait so much you I'm,
1: I'm willing to come on again you, that that was yeah. a that was an implied invitation yeah. yes accept. <laughs> okay
0: well and I also i want to be really selfish and i think i might want to just talk to you oh, we'll
1: about talk myself. offline <laughs> We'll talk <laughs> offline. I have no
2: problem with that. At all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I I appreciate look, yeah, I appreciate it, Greg. I look forward to continuing the conversation. You bring so much depth to these discussions and, and, and some of some of the ideas that I think you've expressed about the origins of the current moment, I don't think we hear enough about in public square. So I hope you'll keep on talking about them, writing about them, and sharing them with us.
1: Thank you. I definitely will.
2: Thank
0: you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real.